let us call one another to worship. Beyond our busyness, above the cold winter days of our lives, there is a glory rising born of heaven and reaching out to each one of us. A light shines through the clouds, an invitation seeking all of who we are that transfigures the world. A light transforms darkness into hope, bringing life from a cross, bringing old life to an end and new life to birth. In glory, Jesus meets us here, raising us from the depths of valley to the heights of the mountain, carrying the weight of our humanity to the heights of heaven's glory. Let us worship from the mountain and here again. This is my son, the chosen. Listen to him.
Great God of mountaintop and valley depth, we gather to seek your presence this morning. We come from far and wide, from the four corners of our city and beyond. And as we gather, we bring our lives, with all their diversity and complexity, into your loving, living presence for transformation and healing and renewal. Some of us have come from happy homes, and some of us have come from troubled corners. Some of us have come to offer praise and thanksgiving, and some of us have come to offer pain and distress. We come from both mountaintop and valley depth, but we have come because you have called us. God of transfiguration, may we encounter you today with unveiled faces. Keep us from hiding behind the veils of self-deception, fear and inadequacy. May we today encounter you face to face. May we learn to see ourselves as you see us. And may we learn to see our world as you see it. May your kingdom come as we, your people, meet with you. May your kingdom come as we, your people, are transformed by you. May your spirit rest with us all. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen. And we say together the words of the Lord's Prayer. Loving God in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. The first reading is taken from Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 27 to 38. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said this all quite openly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him but turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We continue the same reading from Mark chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became dazzling white such as no one on earth could have bleached them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, And from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Thank you, Jeff. So I've always loved optical illusions, particularly the kind where you get uh, two different images depending on which part of the picture you're focusing on. So Liz, could we have the first slide? Well, yeah, maybe first slide. Um, Do you know this one? Um, it's, I, I did a bit of uh, research on where it came from because I remember seeing it in a kind of book of optical illusions when I was a kid. It originated in the 19th century, and it, it, but it became famous when it was published in the early 20th century in the satirical magazine Puck with the title My Wife and My Mother-in-Law. Uh, depending on how you look at it, you will either see a beautiful woman looking away from you or an old woman looking towards you. Uh, can, you, can you see those, or you've seen it before? I'm getting some nods, I'm getting some shakes. Um, well, I mean, I, I did contemplate, actually, because uh, I had quite a lot of fun preparing, uh, looking at optical illusions. I got quite sidetracked. I did contemplate kind of scrapping the sermon and us just having fun looking at optical illusions. And actually, I did prepare a whole PowerPoint of them, but I, I think we're not going to do it. Um, but you can waste plenty of time at home on that without my assistance. But I wanted to make the point that sometimes we need to learn to see things differently. Not everything is as it seems, and not everything can only be seen one way. Which is kind of the theme for our readings this morning from the Gospel of Mark. So today is the day in the Christian calendar known as Transfiguration Sunday. Um, By the way, Liz, we can blank that now just... Kill that. Thank you. 
Um, so today is the day in the Christian calendar known as Transfiguration Sunday. And uh, as we are continuing to work our way through the Gospel of Mark, we conveniently find ourselves at the story of the Transfiguration. It's almost as if the people who put together the narrative lectionary had planned it. And the Transfiguration is an invitation to see things differently, to learn to see things in a new way. I'll come back to that in a bit. But first, I'd like us to consider the story that Mark's give us. Mark gives us just before the bright lights and the mystical, mythical characters on the mountain. This is the confession of Jesus by Peter at Caesarea Philippi. This story, fitting for what scholars tell us is the central narrative of Mark's gospel, touches on some of the key philosophical issues of what it means to be human. Here we encounter the problem of suffering, the mysteries of life, death and resurrection, the nature of evil and the question of ultimate authority. So buckle up, we're going deep. I've mentioned before that Mark's gospel uh, is very focused on geography. None of it happens by accident. And Mark often gives his readers little clues about where things are happening. It's, it's quite a geographical gospel. And it's always worth paying attention to these little clues when they pop up. In fact, the whole of the gospel has a careful geographical structure. It starts in the north, in the region around Galilee, and then it moves south to Jerusalem in the second half of the gospel. This is where we get the, the idea of Jesus' ministry taking place over one year and beginning up north and going down south. Of course, if you've ever read John's Gospel, uh, you will know that Jesus is up and down like a yo-yo in John's Gospel and the whole thing takes three years. So we have to just have an eye to the fact that the Gospel writers are telling their stories their way um, and you know, perhaps hold that slightly separate from what may or may not have happened historically. But anyway... Here in our story for today, which, as I said, comes at the halfway point in the gospel, the central narrative, um, things are about to start heading south, so to speak, but not quite yet, because today we're in the town of Caesarea Philippi, which is an ancient Roman city and region located at the southwestern base of Mount Hermon, which is actually about as far north as Mark's gospel ever gets. Um, we did go to Mount Hermon many years ago. Liz and I went to Israel 26 years ago, on a, 27 years ago, on a university study visit. And back before the Golan Heights were completely off limits uh, for visiting, we were able to go up to that area, and we did go up Mount Hermon. Uh, it's, it's snowy at the top, which may make sense, by the way, of some of the language about white and needing booths to shelter in. Anyway... Uh, Caesarea Philippi, at the base of the mountain, uh, was this uh, Roman settlement, and it had a spring and a grotto, and it had a shrine dedicated to the Greek god Pan. And the city that existed at the time of Jesus had been um, built by Herod the Great. He'd put a large white marble temple there, and then it had been developed by Herod's son Philip, who you may remember we met a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at the Herodian dynasty, and Philip named this area Caesarea in honor of the Roman Emperor Augustus, Caesar Augustus. And he named it Philippi in honor of himself, a typical Herodian dynasty touch. So the name of the area where this 
story is set, Caesarea Philippi is highly symbolic. You've got there Roman power in Caesar, Caesarea. You've got the seat of Jewish religious authority. So you've got uh, the name of Philip, one of the Herods, and his father's temple that he built there. And you've also got a center for pagan mystery religions with the, uh, the, the shrine to Pan. So it's no accident that Mark takes us, his readers, to Caesarea Philippi to address the question that has been haunting the gospel up to this point. And the question is very simple. Who is Jesus? Now, of course, if we've been reading the gospel carefully, we will know that Mark has already given us, the readers, his answer to this question. He gives it away in the very first verse of the gospel. As his readers, we already know that he thinks Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, chapter 1, verse 1. We've had this confirmed to us as we've listened to the voice of God declaring to Jesus at his baptism, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased, chapter 1, verse 11. But for the characters in the story, the characters in the narrative that Mark is telling, the question of who Jesus is has been much more mysterious because they don't have an authorial voice leaning out of the text and giving them clues. So the characters in the story have witnessed him casting out spirits of uncleanness. They've seen him healing people and restoring them to right relationships with others and with God. And they've heard a bit, but not a lot, of his teaching. But have they worked it out yet? This is what Jesus asks Peter at Caesarea Philippi. And the initial response isn't promising. As Peter reports back that some people are saying um, that Jesus is the ancient prophet Elijah, returns to the earth, and that others are thinking he's maybe John the Baptist, come back from the grave, having been beheaded by Herod and all of that story that we looked at the other day. And this raises an interesting question for us in our world. In terms of the variety of views and opinions that exist in answer to the question, who is or was Jesus? I mean, just take a moment in your own mind. If somebody said to you, who's Jesus? You know, what authentically, you know, I'm not asking for like, you know, the trite Christian answer, but authentically, how would you answer that to yourself? And I wouldn't mind betting that if we went out onto Shaftesbury Avenue and uh, did a kind of a vox pop of people strolling past the church and asked them, who do you think Jesus is, we might get some pretty interesting answers. Um, the response of those around Jesus in the first century, I think, interestingly, pretty much mirrors the two main typical responses you're likely to get to this question today. So some people will, I'm sure today, say that Jesus is a religious leader, a kind of spiritual reformer, you know, a caller to repentance. Or as Peter put it, some say, you're John the Baptist, come back from the grave. Others might say, you know, Jesus is more of a prophetic figure, offering a kind of social and political critique. That would be a very Bloomsbury answer, I think. You know, or as... Peter put it, or some say you're a modern-day Elijah. And it may be that there are some of us here this morning who would, you know, for preference, put Jesus into one or other of those categories. But Jesus pushes a bit further and asks Peter who he thinks that Jesus is. 
And here I think we get to the heart of the matter, as Peter has one of his rare moments of lucidity, giving the answer that the gospel has been building up to. He says that Jesus is the Messiah. And honestly, it would be hard to imagine a more inflammatory thing to say in the city of Caesarea Philippi. The word Messiah is a Hebrew word, meaning anointed one. It's often translated into Greek as Christ. So we sometimes think that um, Christ is almost like Jesus' surname, you know. Uh, what's his name? Jesus, surname, Christ. Uh, actually, Christ is just the Greek version for Messiah. And uh, it means anointed one. And in the Jewish tradition, the only people who were entitled to be anointed were the high priest and the king. So to declare Jesus as the Messiah was a direct challenge to the very heart of the Jewish power system, striking at the roots of both religious and royal power not to mention the implications for the relations with the Romans of proclaiming someone anointed, which means they're both the head of the religious system and the royal system, in a town literally named after the Roman god emperor. I mean, this is extremely dangerous stuff. It isn't so much a revelation as it is a revolution. And the possibility of it all getting very bloody very quickly is right there. Now, we don't know whether impetuous Peter, quick with his sword and his words, if not always with his brain, was gearing up for an armed march on Jerusalem to retake the city from the Romans. It's certainly likely that people were putting that kind of expectation on Jesus. And certainly if he was, it would explain what happened next. So firstly, Jesus told Peter and the others not to say anything to anyone. There was to be no rabble-rousing at Caesarea Philippi that day. And then he started to teach them about how the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again, to quote from verse 31. And you can understand why Peter is confused. He needs to learn the lesson that sometimes we need to see things differently. Not everything is as it seems, and not everything can only be seen one way. If Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, if he is the personification of royal power and the embodiment of religious power, then this doesn't look like the kind of kingship or priesthood that people have been hoping for. If this is Jesus making his great bid to become the heir of David, the king who was also a priest, then from Peter's point of view, something is going wrong. If this is Jesus challenging the power of Caesar, Rome, and the Herodian dynasty, then I'm kind of with Peter that this isn't going to work if that figurehead then goes to his death. But sometimes we need to see things differently because not everything is always as it seems. And closer attention to what Jesus is saying reveals uh, Mark here is making a deliberate point. In his choice of words, the way Mark tells this story, he is consciously aligning Jesus with the trajectory of the suffering servant from the book of Isaiah. If we'd had an Old Testament reading, I would have had it from Isaiah and we would have had a series of readings around the suffering servant. 
who faced suffering and death for the sins of the world. Now, at the time the book of Isaiah was written, the suffering servant was a personification of the nation of Israel, suffering the indignity of the exile at the hands of sinful nations who rejected God and God's people. And when I was teaching uh, biblical studies at the university and I was teaching first year Old Testament, we get to Isaiah and the suffering servant passages. And the non-Christians in the class, of whom there were many because it was a university and it was a religious and theological studies course, uh, they go, oh, fine, this is clearly Israel. The Christians would be sitting there going, no, 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 it's Jesus. And I think we do have to remember that something like the book of Isaiah has an integrity in the context for which it was written. And the suffering servant of the book of Isaiah, for Isaiah, was a personification of Israel's suffering exile. However, the Christian tradition, and we get it here in Mark's Gospel, identifies Jesus with the suffering servant so that what was said about Israel of old becomes true for Jesus in the first century. And here we have Mark telling this story of Jesus indicating that just as the suffering servant of Israel had to face pain and, in effect, death as the nation died and the temple was destroyed and exile began, so the same is true for him. But why does Jesus do this? Why does he say the Son of Man must undergo great suffering? Where's this must coming from? It's a big question, isn't it? Why does Jesus have to die? Some Christians will say that Jesus had to suffer and die because it was the only way that the wrath of God against human sin could be satisfied. You may have heard this explanation in the past. The line of logic goes something like, if the wages of sin is death, then divine righteousness demands the sacrifice of an innocent victim in place of those sinners whom God longs to spare. This kind of thinking is known as substitutionary atonement theory. And thankfully, it isn't the only game in town. Uh, my colleague in ministry uh, from south of the river, Steve Chalk, some of you may remember, got into an awful lot of trouble a few years ago when he published a book critiquing this way of looking at it. Well, it's not the only option. Sometimes we need to learn to see things differently because not everything is as it seems and not everything can only be seen one way. So I'd like to suggest an alternative to substitutionary atonement theory in answer to the question of why does Jesus have to die? Which is that Jesus had to suffer and die not because God is wrathful but because humans are sinful. And it's an important distinction. If Jesus is God made flesh, drawing near to humans in love, then sin is human resistance to that work of grace. If Jesus is inaugurating God's new reign or kingdom of love, then sin is human resistance to that inbreaking kingdom. To put it another way, sin is the human will which fights to the death to stop God being God because deep down we want God to be more like us and less like God. And when God is like God, 
Humans react quite badly sometimes. So, Jesus says that he must suffer and die, not to keep sinners from the hands of an angry God, to quote Jonathan Edwards, the revivalist preacher, but because Jesus knows that he must remain true to his mission of bringing God's offensively inclusive love to all, and that humans, at least some of them, will be so offended by that that they will resist him to the bitter end and will put him to death to silence him. And because people still caught in sin will always fight to stop God drawing near to them, Jesus says that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected by those who should know better, that he must die, and that he must rise again. If the suffering servant Israel in the book of Isaiah faced exile and destruction at the hands of those who rejected God and God's people, in order to bring salvation to the very nations who had denied God's love, then the same is true to Jesus who embodies the hope of God's people in all times and places, and who must therefore suffer and die in order to unmask the violence of human sinfulness once and for all. The death of the Messiah at the hands of sinners will be a cataclysmic event from which there is no going back. There'll be no undoing this moment of scapegoating once it's happened, where the one dies because of the sins of the many. It's no wonder Peter is confused and upset. I mean, I've just said all this stuff and I'm a little bit confused and slightly upset. Thankfully, the death of the Messiah is not the end of the story. And the good news here, which Jesus speaks but which Peter misses, is that the death of the Messiah must be followed by resurrection. So a way of thinking about resurrection, which I find helpful, is that it is God's no to human rejection of God and that it speaks of the deep truth that God's ultimate will is for life and not death to get the final word. So every time humans draw back from God and resist God's attempt to draw near to them, every time we make choices that bring death and pain and suffering to humanity, God answers back at those choices with a divine no persistently calling life back into being from the darkness of the tombs we create. This is why the Son of Man must suffer and die, because without confronting the awful consequences of human sin, the path to life remains stubbornly blocked. So what is this resurrection life that is so wonderful that it's worth suffering and death to find it? And again, there are those Christians who will say that the life that Jesus brings is a life beyond death, the afterlife, heaven, the good place, eternity on a cloud with a harp, however you choose to think of it. And I'm not going to try and deconstruct the classical theology of heaven for you this morning. That's another sermon for another day. I may do that on Easter Sunday. How's that? But I do wonder if there is a shift of perspective here that might help us understand what Jesus is getting at. Sometimes, as I've said, we need to learn to see things differently and that not everything can only be seen one way. And the Greek word that Mark uses here, the Greek word that's used for life, is not zoe, which would typically describe physical 
life, characterised by hearts pumping and lungs expanding. The kind of life that's being talked about here is not the kind of thing a doctor can fix. Rather, the Greek word that's used here for life is the word suke, which describes the life spiritual, the life of the soul, the heart, and the mind. So when Jesus says that those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for his sake will save it, and when he talks about his own life coming to an end, he's talking about the life spiritual, not the life physical. The loss and gain in view here, the death and resurrection, is in the essence, in the vitality of a person, not in their biological existence. I think we've got ourselves in a bit of a muddle when we've thought of this purely in terms of this bundle of nerves and muscles and flab that we call us. So the finding of true eternal spiritual life involves losing one's self in something greater than oneself. Those who lose their life, their self in Jesus, and in the gospel he proclaims, find that this sacrifice restores to them their true self, their true quality of life. And just as Jesus must suffer and die and lose his life in order that the new life of resurrection may be unleashed, so wherever new life in Jesus is found, wherever those who lose their self and find it again in him, this is where resurrection occurs. The giving up of oneself in order to find life becomes the aligning of our life with that which is greater than we are, and this is the new life, the new vitality, the new suke that Christ provides. And so we come to the moment of transfiguration with Jesus, Peter, James and John making their pilgrimage up Mount Hermon from Caesarea Philippi. And here we find ourselves sharing with them in the ultimate mountaintop experience, the moment of supreme revelation in the gospel where the key group of disciples hear the answer to the question of who Jesus is, and they hear it from none other than the voice of God. This is where Mark's assertion in the first verse of the Gospel and Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi get their divine authorization. Jesus is the Son of God. In Jesus, all the fullness of God is made known. In Jesus, God draws near to sinful humans as an act of love, identifying with us in all our sinfulness in order to fan into flame the spark of life that lies dormant in each human soul. In Christ, God is drawing our souls to life, gifting us resurrection, and showing us a new way of seeing and being and doing. The moment of transfiguration is God's gift to each of us, showing us that we can share in and experience the life-giving, life-affirming, life-renewing resurrection of Christ. The question for us, as for the disciples on the mountaintop, is whether we can accept and inhabit this new perspective. It's not very Bloomsbury sometimes, is it, to say we really, deep down, in our heart of hearts, believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We nuance ourselves around with caveats and theology. And we might raise questions about what we mean by resurrection and life. And we might think about substitutionary atonement. 
deep down, is Jesus, the Son of God, is where this passage takes us. And I've tried to give us some theological frameworks that might allow us to look at it in different ways. But this is the question. And I can't answer that for you. You will answer it for yourselves, of course. Peter, of course, gets it wrong, which always gives me hope. Having already denied what Jesus had said about the need for the Messiah to be crucified, he next offers to build little huts for Jesus and the Old Testament characters, probably to protect them from the snow. Um, He doesn't really ask the question of why these Old Testament guys are then mysteriously with Jesus on the mountain. Uh, Just as an aside, it is sometimes suggested that Moses and Elijah appear at this point to demonstrate Jesus is the fulfillment of the law personified by Moses and the prophets personified by Elijah. You may have heard that in previous sermons on Transfiguration Sundays. I'm not sure I'm convinced, really. I mean, Moses was a prophet and Elijah, you know, articulated and proclaimed the law. So I think it's much more likely that what we've got going on here. Uh, is that they are present at this point where heaven opens to reveal the identity of Jesus because of their role within the Jewish apocalyptic tradition. And both Moses and Elijah have slightly ambiguous death traditions within Judaism. And this meant that within first century apocalyptic texts, they often feature as kind of tour guides of heaven, showing people round in their visions. And their appearance with Jesus at this transfiguration moment is an indication that this is an apocalyptic moment. It is a moment of the unveiling of truth, when the boundary between God's realm and the earthly realm is breached. Such moments don't last forever, of course, as you'll know if you've ever had your own mountaintop experience of the overwhelming and inescapable presence of God. None of us can stay on the mountaintop forever. We have to get back to real life to the nitty-gritty of living out the truth that has been revealed to us. So Peter is mistaken, but understandably so, in his desire to perpetuate the heavenly moment. But the revelation of Jesus' identity doesn't leave him and his perspective is forever changed by his encounter with Jesus on the mountain. The hot-headed, impetuous Peter ends up as the rock on which the church is built. And the same can be true for us in our encounter with the transfigured Christ. So I wonder if this morning, on Transfiguration Sunday, when we are confronted with a challenge, who do you think, who do you say Jesus is? I wonder if we can see Jesus in a new way, and if we can see in a new way what it is to believe that in Jesus, God is drawing near to us. The change of perspective that this truth gives us is something that will deeply affect the way we live in the world. This is no cost-neutral paradigm shift. It's going to bring transformation to anyone who opens their hearts to it. The transfiguration narrative ends with the voice from heaven declaring that Jesus is God's son, echoing the words spoken from heaven at Jesus' baptism. But there's a significant difference. At the baptism, the declaration was for Jesus. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Whereas at the transfiguration, the declaration is for the disciples of Jesus. It's for us. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. The change of perspective here is not just about who Jesus is. 
It's about what are we then going to do about it. It's not enough to accept that Jesus is God's son. That has to go somewhere. And those who have seen transfiguration, who have received the revelation of Jesus' identity, now need to learn to listen to the voice of Jesus. And there are so many voices clamoring for our attention, so many calls on our loyalty, allegiance, and resources. And in the midst of it all, in our version of Caesarea Philippi, where all the powers seem to coalesce and call on our loyalty. I wonder if we can learn to listen to the voice of Jesus and in listening discover the truth of who he is as the challenge is brought to all those other powers that might seek to own us. And I wonder if we can hear the invitation to the new quality of life, to resurrection, where as we lose ourselves in Jesus, we are found by the one who truly loves us. So who do you say that Jesus is? Let's come to God in prayer. Lord God, we thank you that you are a great God, a creator God, a God who is always present. We thank you that you are not distant, you are approachable, you are kind, you are loving. We thank you for Jesus. He lived among us. He cared for those around him. He showed us what God is like. We pray for our world. We see wars. We see natural disasters. We see disasters caused by climate change. We see poverty caused by the greed of others. We pray that those in power will have the wisdom and courage to change these things. We pray for those fighting to contain the coronavirus, that it might cease to spread. We pray for our own nation, where division and that division and suspicion might cease. We pray that each one of us might see beyond difference and might see that each one of us is a child of God, that we might reach out with kindness and empathy to all around us, knowing that each one is our sibling. We pray for us. Let's take a moment to name in our hearts those whom we love those whom we worry about, those who face trials. Lord God, comfort those who mourn. Grant them a sense of your loving presence. Be with those who are sick and ill or those who face infirmities of age. Surround them with your love and with those who love them. Still the hearts of those who fear. May they know the goodness of God. Give wisdom to those who have difficult decisions to make. Strengthen the weary. 
Give us all the joy of your presence and your loving our hearts as we go about our daily business. Hear our prayer this morning. Amen.
So go into God's world with love, hope, joy and faith in your hearts. And may the blessing of Almighty God, Creator, Redeemer and Sustainer, be with us all today and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>